This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world today. I'm Nicole Martin, and today Russell Moore and I are joined by Rasul Berry. We'll discuss the congressional hearings surrounding unidentified anomalous phenomena, the latest tragic incident of police brutality, and Mike Cosper sits down with Dennis Quaid to talk about his release of a gospel album. Happy Friday and welcome to The Bulletin. This is Russell Moore. We're joined here as always by Nicole Martin. Hello, Nicole. Hey, Russell. And we also have with us a special guest, Rasul Berry, who is teaching pastor at the Bridge Church in Brooklyn. He's a director at our Daily Bread Ministries and hosts ACT Podcast. Where are you from? Rasul, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. And it's also special because the number one mispronounced way that people mispronounce my name is Russell. (laughs) So now we have Russell and Rasul. There you go. So there's no way that they can get the two confused. <laughs> That's so right. easy. <laughs> That's right. And Mike Cusper has been abducted by aliens. He's there not with go. us today, and that will make sense. That will make sense very soon because we have a display of uh, unity in Washington. One member of Congress said that this was the most productive and cooperative engagement between Democrats and Republicans that he had seen. And the subject was UFOs. Not UFOs. Mm. We don't call them UFOs anymore. It's not unidentified flying objects. It's instead UAPs, Mm. which is unidentified anomalous projections. Unidentified aerial aerial phenomena. Well, I think they've changed aerial to anomalous anomalous because they're also including underwater. So Mm. we'll have to get used to that. It'll it'll take a little bit bit to to do that. Uh, One reporter, Scott McFarland at CBS News, said that the line getting into the hearing room was like a Taylor Swift concert. Uh, <laughs> that is, so this is this is a second week in a row Taylor Swift has visited the bulletin. But wow. he said that there were tons of people wanting to get in because of the subject matter. And what I'm really interested in and talking about here is the fact that if you think about imagining that this sort of conversation would have happened ever before without completely shaking up and rattling everybody. Mm -hmm. We're here with a whistleblower, former Air Force intelligence officer, who is claiming not only, you know, compiling all of the UAP sightings that have taken place, the unexplained and unexplainable technology, but also suggested that there were biologics, as he put it, recovery of non-human beings. I mean, if if you think about this, this is astounding. This isn't somebody off on some wacky corner of Facebook talking about this. This is instead an actual congressional hearing. And the members of Congress were not treating this like some sort of a crank matter, but as something to be seriously looked into, which means that things are getting really, really strange. Nicole, Mm -hmm. what did you think seeing all of this? Well, that's a great way of putting it. Things are getting really strange. There were so many angles. You know, I've been spending some time trying to wrap my head around the things that I don't quite understand. Mm -hmm. So you have this idea, the role of government, that there's an idea that there have been national, international intergalactic secrets kept from American people and that this has been a concerted effort by the government over time. So it raises so many questions. You know, on the one hand, should we trust the government? Should we trust that they held these things from us because they were protecting us? On the other hand, you know, is this the fault of the government, so to speak? I mean, there's a role of what role does the government play in either protecting or concealing information from the American people. And then you cannot help 
but draw on all of the, for better or worse, images that Hollywood has implanted in our brains Mm -hmm. of alien life. You go as far as Predators and Aliens, you come back Mm -hmm. to Independence Day, you go to E.T., you come back to, you know, anything. And you start to think, well, was there truth in that? Could Hollywood have actually been planting seeds of truth? And then you've got the theological angle. And I jokingly said to my husband, listen, I just have one question. Can aliens be saved? That's all I want to know. But, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're half joking, but we realize we have so much information now that we just didn't know. Yeah. Well, there are several different categories that are there that I want us to talk about. But the first mm-hmm. one you mentioned, first, I mean, you're it, this really sounds kind of conspiracy theory-ish. Uh, mm-hmm. Has the government kept from us Roswell aliens? On the other hand, that's part of what, you know, whether these officials giving testimony yesterday are to be believed or not. One of the things that they're saying is that there's retaliation that comes if anybody yeah. brings up the subject. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, not necessarily retaliation of, yeah. oh, you're you're revealing our secrets here. It might just be the fact this is so strange that you and I both know if somebody comes up to us in our church small group and says, you know, last night I uh, encountered a, a spacecraft that uh, took me up into it for a little while, we're going to say, hey, uh, we need to get you some help. (laughs) So that might be part of it as well. Russell, do you think that there's just the fact that nobody knows what to do with this, does that really tell us anything in your mind about where trust is right now? I think trust is the big question. And I think that's one of the underlying stories, I think, behind the bipartisan nature of the hearings themselves. Because you know, what you have underneath is this suspicion and criticism that the executive branch of the government is not divulging the information to the legislative branch enough. And so there's a sense of wanting to curb some of that. And then there's also the question that I think we're at a time period where trust in government is probably at one of the lowest in, you know, maybe our nation's history. And so I think the suspicion around what are they holding or keeping from us and that there is this assumption that there is, I mean, it's completely flipped from 20, 30 years ago when you hear, you know, you had this picture in your mind of somebody with a T-shirt on out in New Mexico that was, you know, kind of rambling. And then, you know, and like that was the anomaly. (laughs) Now it's Mm -hmm. like, well, wait a minute, what is Uncle Sam hiding? And so Mm -hmm. I do think that the seeds, the the atmosphere is ripe for a kind of scrutiny and a questioning. And the more that there is a sense of holding back information, the more suspicion there is about why that information is being withheld. Now, I will say this. This is a very unpopular take I'm about to offer. I'm okay with that. I asked my wife this question this morning. If the government did know that there were aliens that had advanced technology that we could not compete with. Would you want to know? <laughs> and she was like, uh, no. or I put it, I put it this way. Do you think it would be helpful for us as a populace to be aware mm-hmm. of that? Mm-hmm. Like, do you think mm-hmm. that would be mm-hmm. valuable? Would that be constructive or destructive? She's like, yeah, I, I don't, I think it'd probably be good <laughs> to not know. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for withholding. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, There was a time, it feels like quaint and long ago, where even the withholding of all information and secrets could be seen in a light that was maybe for our best interest. Those days are Mm -hmm. long gone. And so that's another layer to it, to me, when I think about trust. Well, yeah, and I'm actually on the pro-withholding side of Mm -hmm. this, given the fact that, I mean, according to some of this testimony, these these aircraft, these objects, whatever they are, can do things that no one knows how they're doing them. Stop Mm -hmm. in midair and hurricane winds and accelerate and so forth. And so there's a very, I mean, one of the questions is, before you get to really speculative extraterrestrial sorts of questions, it's, 
does China have this kind of technology? Mm, are, are these right. uh, enemies mm -hmm. of ours? And if mm -hmm. that's the case, of course, I mean, you don't want the government saying what they know. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe this, a lot of people have been watching Oppenheimer this week. I haven't seen it yet. Mm -hmm. I know, Nicole, you're planning to do the Barbie Heimer, Barbie oh, Oppenheimer. Yeah. So maybe we could talk about that next week. It'll drive yes. Mike crazy. Let's do it. That'd be great. <laughs> but, you know, the, the Manhattan Project was a secret, of course. Nobody, mm -hmm. nobody wanted to come out and say, hey, everybody, we're about a tenth of the way through on the atom bomb. You, you yeah. want to keep that withheld. But, yeah, there's a lot to be kind of worried about. But I also yeah. think that what's behind this is also the opposite of that. There's kind of a sense of wonder here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons why I think there were so many people wanting to get into that room is because I think there's something actually enlivening to people about realizing maybe the universe isn't just as explained and mapped out as mm -hmm. we think it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that, Nicole? Oh, so this is what I think excites me and makes me a little nervous at the same time. I remember... Earlier in the summer, we took the girls to the planetarium at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Wonderful experience. We go into the planetarium, and you know you've been in the planetarium. It kind of It's like a dome. It's like a movie that shows on a dome, and the chairs lean back, and you're catapulted into space. And it starts talking about galaxies and the billions of like stars and how there are many, many more galaxies beyond ours. But what happens in that moment, and even what happened for my girls, is you leave and you think, this life is not actually all about me. And as mm -hmm. believers, this becomes yet another layer to remind us of the mystery of God and of the fact that there is so much that we don't know. Now, that can either be very scary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my eight-year-old was like, wait, what do you mean we're a Goldilocks planet? What, what if God, <laughs> what if there are other Goldilocks planets out there? So it can underscore a little fear or it can ignite a curiosity that I think is required for our ultimate faith and trust in God. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Russell? Do you see something really good, even if all this is nonsense? Is there something really good about people pondering it? You know, I've always had a mixed feelings about, you know, the extraterrestrial conversation because I've found historically in my experience that that has tended to cause people to question faith. That somehow the existence mm -hmm. of aliens to them was yeah. a something that disproved the veracity of scripture. Mm. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I'm just saying that that's where it seemed to go usually when people mm -hmm. went down that road, or at the very least, was seemingly like such a distraction, you know, to their to our own story that I've kind of tended to you know, view it in that way. And yet at the same time, I think all truth is God's truth. And so mm -hmm. the more we learn about the universe, the more we learn about whether we're alone or not in terms of other created beings, I think that it could have a, a, a valuable effect on us in the sense that just the mere idea that reality isn't just based on what we can see, right? And that there mm -hmm. have been Mm -hmm. beings even potentially among us that we couldn't see. Well, that tends to set, set up really well for the reality of angels, demons, and mm -hmm. the ultimate reality of a supreme being who we may not be able to see, which to many materialists would have seemed completely far-fetched. Well, now there's a little bit more of an ammo to say, well, there have been other beings that have been around us this long. Why not ones that are supernatural in their origin? You know, it, it kind of comes back to that key problem in Psalm 8, uh, mm -hmm. where uh, David says, I look to the heavens mm -hmm. and I see the magnificence of the heavens. And my question is, what is man that thou art mindful of him? I mean, mm -hmm. how, how can such a tiny little speck in the universe actually matter? Yeah. And of course, you think about it, the psalmist did not have access to the planetarium or, or to what we can see around us. And we can probably only see just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of what's around us. But it does give that sense of smallness mm -hmm. that I think is an important step of realizing the way that Hebrews 2 answers that question, which is to, to give it again and say, and God says, I've put all things under your feet. Doesn't yeah. look like it, yeah. Brother Hebrews okay. says, 
but we see Jesus. Yep. And I think that's a really key problem. So Nicole, you mentioned this. Let's let's uh, go there. Let's just suppose, suspend our disbelief for a few moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, suppose we do have extraterrestrial beings who are piloting <laughs> piloting aircraft on this uh, on this planet. Do we share the gospel with them? Oh, see that that is the question. <laughs> um, do we share the gospel with them? Do they share the gospel with us? Oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, part of the and I, I love that you brought up Psalm eight because part of the joy of both the magnitude of God and yet the hyper kind of individual question, who am I that that you would even think of me, allows room to say, I deeply believe in the salvation of Jesus Christ, so much so that even if the Leviathan comes back, even mm-hmm. if I discover that the Nephilim are actually, you know, the, the forerunners of the aliens, even when those things or should those things happen, it does not change the fact that I believe that Jesus saves. And if that's the case, then maybe the short answer is yes. Maybe, maybe we share Jesus with the aliens. But I mean, this is it is so difficult to even take that step. I was going to ask you, Russell, what the two of you thought about the Gallup poll that says we've hit a low in people believing in God, the devil, heaven, and hell, but mm-hmm. we're also at a high in people believing in aliens. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. And yeah. maybe it's okay to just land there and say, I don't know, but I believe so deeply in salvation that I would share it with anything, anything. Aliens included? <laughs> well, I mean, that's an interesting point you made of, of what if they're coming to share the gospel with us. Wouldn't that be amazing if the, the spaceship <laughs> opens and they all have WWJD bracelets <laughs> on and say, come on, people, we've known this for a long right. time. Get, Handing get, out get, tracks get, of act together, people. Digital tracks of the four spiritual laws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, but even so, I mean, I think the key question here, it is, a, it is I think, an important question even if it boggles our mind to think about this, you know, really speculative sort yeah. of aspect of it, because yeah. we believe that the word has become flesh, mm-hmm. that Jesus shares a human nature with us. And even if human beings are the only biological life form in the cosmos, we do know there are other intelligences, angels and, and demons, mm-hmm. and Jesus did not share a nature with with the fallen angels, but with mm-hmm. humanity. So I think the big question we would have to ask is, what counts as human? Mm. And uh, does this being or person yeah. count as human? And how would we know? Mm-hmm. Which would mean really spending some time saying, hey, what does the Bible teach us about what it really means to be a human? Is it more than geography? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I know the answer to that. And I suppose if we're ever confronted with it, we'd have to get caught up really, really quickly. But Nicole mentioned this point, Rasul, and you alluded to it earlier, the fact that we do have this sense of widespread secularization going on where people would say, oh, it's ridiculous if you talk, if you think there's a devil, Mm -hmm. but a heightening belief in these sorts of extraterrestrial phenomena, not, not even just that, but you look around and you have astrology interest going up and, and yep. so forth. And I wonder when Nicole brought up the movies, you know, there's a This American Life broadcast where Ira Glass talks about the fact that you can take the alien, you know, small a alien movies and divide them up into basically three categories. One is the aliens are here to destroy you. And that would be, you know, Alien, Aliens, uh, War of the Worlds, all Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Independence Day. Or the aliens are misunderstood and mistreated by human Mm -hmm. beings, E.T., Mm -hmm. a lot of those like that. And then a third category that I can't exactly remember what it is. But do you think that when Nicole said, have the movies been actually on to something, I think the answer to that is yes, not that the filmmakers know anything about UAPs, but that there's a sense that human beings intuitively know we're not alone in the universe. There's something else out there that means to do us well, 
And there's something else out there that means to do us ill. We have that intuitive feeling, which I think the Bible tells us, ministering spirits and evil spirits. Do you think that there's that there's something in human nature, regardless of the truth or conspiracy of any of this, that this sort of conversation touches? I, I think so. I think the mystery, the wonder, and the sense that even people who would not identify themselves as Christians or believers in any, you know, practical sense still have this sense and even aspiration that there's more to the reality of living than just you're, you're dead and that's it, right? That there's more to mm -hmm. just when a loved one, you know, dies, that, that, that there's somehow still a connection, there's somehow still with us. And so I think in general, like there is a pining for and a connection that people are seeking outside of what we would say is just the natural world that spills over into a lot of different points of connection. And I think that the cosmos in general, right? And looking yeah. through the stars. And I think there's a, a desire, like if you were to ask the question differently, and it's the, we typically ask it, intellectually do you think mm -hmm. that there's intelligent life out there yeah but if we were to ask the question differently what do, do you want there to be intelligent yeah. life out there mm -hmm. i think that the answer would be even more affirmatively yes and i do yeah. think that there's something that that you know kind of god-shaped vacuum there's some type of connection void that's tugging on that's causing mm -hmm. us to realize i want there to be a reality in which we're just not on this planet by ourselves. Yeah, Frederick Buechner wrote about that years ago about, um, he was talking about the Loch Ness Monster mm -hmm. and that, uh, you know, all of the stories about the Loch Ness Monster and the expeditions that would go out and try to find it, that it's because people actually want that to be true yeah. because yeah. they really do want to know life isn't just as mundane as it seems. Mm -hmm. And of course, Loch Ness Monster, mm -hmm probably isn't there. I think we would have we would have found it uh, by now. But we do have a strange, odd, glorious, wondrous universe that we only see through a glass darkly with and it's filled with glory. That part's true. We actually can we actually can say that to our neighbors for sure. Nicole, before we go, yeah. you, we were talking a little bit earlier about you were talking about your kids and kind of talking to your kids about some of these things. Let's just suppose that we go beyond congressional hearings. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we know that these hearings, the witnesses have said, we'll meet with you in a skiff. That's a secured compound to be able to, zone of, of secrecy to be able to talk. And we'll have further hearings. Suppose this continues to be, we don't know what's going on here, but here it is. Mm -hmm. How do you explain this to your kids as a mm -hmm. Christian without, I mean, I'm a child of the eighties where we would watch V if people, yes. if anybody knows what V oh, yes. is, he's really benevolent <laughs> uh, right. aliens. And then eventually uh, you realize that they're actually wearing fake skins and they're, yes. they're lizards underneath. I loved it. Uh, so but without great. either freaking them out or yeah. getting us back to that problem that Rasul mentioned of just sort of, well, does that mean that we're just accidents somewhere? How would you explain it? That is a great question. I think, you know, my first instinct is dispel the fear. Help children to know you don't have to be afraid. Well, why don't you have to be afraid? Because the God of the universe is still the God of the universe. So there has to be a certain anchoring in why we don't have to fear these things. And at the same time, how do we inspire awe? Because you could probably argue that a small portion of awe comes from fear. I mean, even mm -hmm. biblically, mm -hmm. the fear of the Lord is also what inspires our awe of God. Every prophet that has some vision of God falls in fear. You know, it's Ezekiel, it's Isaiah. And yet there's a certain awe of God and of God's kingdom and of the glory of the heavens. So I would want to balance that. I don't want them to be afraid for their lives. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I want them to stand in awe of God. Now, 
I must confess they still believe in the tooth fairy. So I don't Mm. want them to start wondering, is the tooth fairy going to abduct me? So Mm -hmm. we'd have to work through that. You know, my youngest still believes in Santa Claus. We'd have to work through that. Is Santa Claus in a UAP? I, I, I can't go there. However, <laughs> <laughs> it's got a gl- glowing red. You know, exactly right. I mean, but at the end of the day, what I would say to my kids is what I pray that I, you know, could say to myself, God, I still trust that you are in control. And also there's so much I don't know. And I am, I am willing to stand in that tension in my relationship with God and prayerfully in my relationship with my kids, right? Yeah, it's a fun topic to talk about just because it reminds us that the everydayness isn't all there is. Now, as Christians, mm-hmm. we know that, yeah. uh, or, but we, we forget it. Yes, And we do. there's a sense of saying, you know, this may just be wacky conspiracy theory stuff. We've seen a lot of it, but... Even if it turns out not to be, eh, Jesus is the one who told us my father's house has many rooms. <laughs> now, that's a new interpretation. Don't even know the uh, the <laughs> breadth good. and the depth of the world he has made. All that's right, good. we'll be right back in just a minute. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome back to the bulletin. We are turning our eyes from the heavens to the earth as we consider some tragedies of our nation for this week. We're talking a little bit about what happened to Jadarius Rose on July 4th. Jadarius Rose was driving a semi-truck in Ohio. He was driving his car and according to reports, he failed to stop at an inspection stop for his truck. At that point, police officers and state troopers began to follow him. Jadarius Rose described that he was concerned about the pursuit, did not know why he was being followed. He called 911. And when he did pull over the truck, he saw the police officers pointing guns at him and decided that he did not feel safe to get out of the car. According to reports, he continued to drive, and then after some time, he pulled the truck over at the urgence of the dispatcher on the 911 call, and when he got out of the car, he was attacked by a police canine. There are so many layers of thoughts, concerns that are within this story. I'd love to hear from you all, what do we make of this? And I'll add to that. I wrote an article about this with CT over earlier this week and reading the comments, you have a lot of concerns. Some are saying, stop talking about black trauma. This was a man who didn't comply with police orders. You get what you get and you don't get upset. There are some saying this image hearkens the images of the civil rights movement when high school students had dogs sicked on them because they were marching for freedom. So what do we make of yet another incident of an unarmed black man having an encounter with police officers that takes him to the hospital. Rasul, what do you make of this? You know, this is one of those stories where I think it's so important for us to do something that social media has, I think, trained and conditioned us not to do, which is to hold multiple things in tension and in nuance. And Mm -hmm. especially for me, you know, as a black man, you know, one of my mental checks when I'm in a car and driving and get stopped, first thing you do is comply immediately. Like that's kind of just mm-hmm. my 
immediate best practice. I think that's what everybody should do. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm also aware of the heightened awareness and fear that I can sometimes yeah. have about what might happen in that stop. And so so I think it's possible for me as I think about Jadarius's situation and the fact that he actually called 911 mm-hmm. like in express. Mm-hmm. So we're not just yeah. speculating like what was going on in his mind. Like he was mm-hmm. literally having a conversation about I don't know why they're following me. I don't know what's mm-hmm. going on. I am scared. Mm-hmm. And so we really do get a clear sense of what's going on inside of him that caused him to be hesitant. And it reminds me of the um, Edelman Trust Barometer, which is an organization that looks at trust in institutions over time. And they've been doing this since 2000. And they've seen and been concerned about what they call this year, the cycle of distrust and specifically government agencies, that there's just less and less trust that people have. And I think when that happens, it can start to create some really unhealthy and dangerous outcomes. But the specifics, it it causes me to cringe a little bit when I hear someone just over, I think, overly simplistically just say, oh, he should have complied into the story. Because Mm -hmm. when you watch the Mm -hmm. video, one of the things that's very striking is that you hear the state troopers repeatedly warn don't release the dog. He has his hands up. Don't release the dog. And so one of the things that's clearly, I think, happening is you have the Circleville police that are close to him on one side. You have state troopers in front of him. And I think he, again, and a man that's already afraid, that, like he might not be sure what to do, right? Like, should I step mm-hmm. forward? He, you know, this, this, the Circleville police are far enough away where we can't hear them. But what we do hear very clearly is the state troopers say, do not release the dog. His hands are in the air. The police department fires the officer, which is unusual in these kind of contexts. Yeah. And yet there's another, like the, I guess, union of the police said that he did nothing wrong. And so I think you see that this is a complex story that also harkens to the visuals. And then the last part I'll say to this, because I think it's important in these conversations, the mere human experience of hearing that man wail mm-hmm. and, 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 and cry and just beg and plead to just mm-hmm. get this dog mm-hmm. off of him ought to be enough that regardless of if he had been guilty of a crime or not, that that should evoke something in me to go, wow, that is a horrific situation, especially for someone who was trying to comply. And so those are the thoughts that I have, you know, together. It is a sad situation, but I I just look at it as part of a bigger story of one of the things that occurs when there is a distrust of of government. Mm -hmm. And Russell, one of the things that I've also heard in this conversation is, well, what was Mr. Rose's criminal record. One of the top searches Mm -hmm. that came up shortly after this incident was Jadarius Rose's criminal record. Mm -hmm. People wanted to justify whether or not this was a valid incident or not. And I've also heard conversation about, well, this, the idea of mentioning a racial disparity when it comes to police brutality is unheard of. It's leftist. It's unnatural. It's not real. What is the right response in times like these? Well, one of the stupidest reactions to the past several years has been this idea that one is either pro-black lives or Mm pro-police, as though being pro-police meant unlimited police brutality. Nothing Mm -hmm. is more destructive of Mm -hmm. actual justice and order and a police force than that. And so when you think about how the Bible maintains there is to be a justice system and that that justice system is held accountable, and and one of the things that we see denounced over and over and over again is the way that a system of justice can mistreat some cases the poor, in some cases the widows, in some cases the sojourners. And we clearly are at a point where when we turn around and every time there's one of these incidents, the message is, well, this is just an anomaly. It's, mm-hmm. it's just because here are, the, here are the reasons why this is the case. 
and yet they happen over and over and over again. There is no other pattern like this that anybody would react that way to. And so part of what concerns me right now is that we have had sort of the backlash that has come after, say, George Floyd era that has really, I think, set this back at being able to even address it at all. And that's not really a new thing. I, I was watching a documentary the other day, and I had even forgotten about this incident. But when Henry Louis Gates, professor at, at Harvard, was arrested going into his own house yeah. in yeah. Cambridge, mm-hmm. President Obama came out and said, you know, we don't know all the facts in this case. But, I mean, clearly arresting somebody after he's shown you his driver's license in his own house is stupid. And the white backlash that came, Mm -hmm. oh, Mm -hmm. the president's race baiting, he's Mm -hmm. he's trying – you think, this was not an incendiary statement. Yeah. This was this was as mild a statement as possible, but there's a really, really dark undercurrent mm-hmm. that's able to say, ah, from Trayvon Martin to George mm-hmm. Floyd to Eric mm-hmm. Garner to this, oh, there's nothing to see here. Let's just move on. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting that all of these things came to the news this week. This week was also a week when President Biden commemorated a memorial for Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And we heard reports from his cousins and from family members talk about what that meant. And at the same time, to see the history of what was the monument there, there was a plaque that was standing at the place where they believed Emmett Till's body was pulled out of the river. Mm -hmm. And they said that that particular signpost had been shot down over and over and over again. So we hold intention, just this hyper-individualization that says, well, that was one situation, one person, one incident. But when they happen over and over and over again, you cannot help but see that there are some things in the ground. There are some systems that need to be corrected, but also some thinking that needs to be corrected so that we can really see what's happening and respond in a way that honors God. Yeah. Well, and, and when you mentioned that as a Mississippian, the Emmett Till That's situation right. is especially sensitive to me because someone mm-hmm. sent me yesterday, one of the Christian nationalist Theo bros uh, out there somewhere on the internet. I don't really don't pay attention to what these guys say, but he sent me a screenshot of one of these guys saying, who's Emmett Till and why are we mm-hmm. supposed to care? These liberals are so triggered about something that happened 55 years ago. You realize when you look at someone who was tortured, beaten, murdered, lynched, Mm. and say, ah, I mean, there is Mm. something really, really satanic about that. Yeah. It is both uh, good and difficult to hear you say it like that because I think we have become so immune Mm -hmm. to the pains of the past. Rasul, I don't know about you, but I have had people say to me, I'm so glad that you're not stuck on slavery. And I've had people say, you know, even response to the article that I wrote, it's time to move on from this false idea of black pain. Mm -hmm. So how do you reconcile how far we have yet to go in our past? And yet all of the traumas that we have experienced in the past as well. What helps me is understanding from the scriptural standpoint, how does God deal with a nation's memory, a people's Mm -hmm. memory? Like what is the role that remembering have in scripture? And you Mm -hmm. see all of it. You see the constant, even when the law is given, it's couched in the context of remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy for you were once slaves in Mm. Egypt, right? And so there's a sense in which there is never a moment in which we are to see ourselves and where we currently exist and live apart from the past that helped shape us into that place, both the negative and the positive. There's also remember you know, what God did when he split the sea and how many times we hear that refrain in the book of Psalms. And so I think that there's a fear that some have of what it means to their identity. You know, Russell mentioned Christian nationalism, and there's a counter narrative that exists. And and, and I think to his point about the satanic origins of it, I mean, you, you see it all the time, like in the minor prophets where 
people want to pretend as if the current reality of their suffering has nothing to do with the past and what they've done to other people, like that there's somehow a disconnect Mm -hmm. where, Mm -hmm. and the prophet's job is to, you know, remind the people and remember and to say, you know, rend your heart, you know what I mean? Not just your garments. Don't just do this for show, but there needs to be something deeper and more meaningful And so I think in the same way, memory is very important in terms of history. And it's contested right now because to Mm -hmm. remember and to recall Emmett Till or to discuss the various different moments in time going all the way back to even, you know, Rodney King. And even before Mm -hmm. that, there's a story about why that touched a nerve in L.A. because of what happened decades before with the black woman in the police force there. And so... This story is important for us to hold together, not just to hold us back, but to move us forward. That's a very good point. And scripture is very clear about remember so that you can move forward. Russell, I have lots of Jewish friends and we've been having conversations and they have a very strong place in their Jewish tradition for remembrance. You know, Mm -hmm. whether this is Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum that is in Israel, or if it is in D.C. or monuments around, there is a place for remembrance. How should Christians remember the past and how can we use that to shape how we think and act when, God forbid, something like this happens in the future again? Well, I think the remembrance piece is key to overcoming the numbness and apathy Mm. piece in which someone can say, I mean, what, what really worries me about the fact that this keeps happening is first of all, that it keeps happening and this is, is such a big problem. But the second thing is every time this happens, it's kind of like school shootings. The more people think, well, this is just something that happens. And they start to just shrug it off like they would changing weather patterns. And that's not what this is. This is a case of accountability. I mean, the the justice system in the United States works for the people. And if we shrug this off, we're accountable for not holding those who work for us accountable when it comes to these disparities and systems that have gone awry. And so that, I think, is really dangerous. And if we have a sense of memory, I mean, what's really interesting to me is the way the scripture keeps talking about, as Rasul mentioned, you were once Mm -hmm. in Egypt. This isn't just some other generation's story. This is your story. And that's even said in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, to Gentile believers. Now that you're in the family of God, this is your story, and these are your brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. Mm -hmm. And I think the Christian church, we need to be the ones who get that, that we're members of one another, and we must bear one another's burdens. And maybe the outside world would see that more if they saw us demonstrating it. Amen to that. And, you know, unfortunately, when you said the outside world, I now think of many worlds, many, many outside worlds and many, (laughs) many existences beyond our own. Well, thank you both for your thoughts on this topic. Really grateful to have the conversation. Thanks for having us. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. All right, Dennis Quaid, welcome to The Bulletin. Hi, Mike. Good to be here with you. 
Yeah, so the album is called Fallen, a gospel record for sinners. It's a, a collection of hymns, familiar gospel songs like Chris Christopherson's Why Me, Lord, and five originals, five songs of your own. Tell me, yeah. as a starting place, how much is this album autobiographical? How much is this your story? Oh, it's very autobiographical. All the songs are very personal. You know, I think that's when you're writing spiritually, it's it's got to be personal. Yeah. Because of, just to go for myself, you know, it's the most authentic place to start from. What was the seed of this project? How did a project like this come about for you? Well, I wrote On My Way to Heaven about 30 years ago, and it was on a record of mine. And Tanya Tucker heard it and she wanted to do it. And she brought along Chris Christopherson. And it's such a good record that my manager had the idea that I should do an album of this, as well as a couple of family members. I grew up in the Baptist church. I've always loved those hymns that I grew up with from my boyhood. You know, they're part of who I am. And my mother passed away as well. And so that really, you know, her she was such a spiritual rock in my life. And hmm. so I, I wrote about her and, you know, my spiritual journey, basically, throughout my life is what the songs are. Yeah, I was curious about that because, I mean, the nature of gospel music, it's, it's kind of like country music. Your soul is on your sleeve mm-hmm. with all of this. And so I was curious how much this was sort of rooted in, I mean, I knew you grew up in Texas. You grew up in the church, grew up around this stuff? Yeah, I grew up in the uh, First Baptist Church of Bel Air. That's uh, where I got <laughs> baptized. I was uh, nine years old. And my grandfather, who was a farmer, he was a tent preacher, actually, for a period of time in his life. So it's, it's the Baptist Church was a big part of my life, you know, growing up, going to Sunday school every week. And really being involved in the church. And this was in the 60s. And I became disillusioned with what I would call churchianity, I think. Mm-hmm. Back then, around the time that I became a teenager, I became disillusioned in a way that I think I started to associate church with money. I think I got reprimanded for not bringing my offering or the, you know, it was a nickel <laughs> instead of a quarter or something. I, I think I probably made a bigger deal of it than it was or whatever. But I became a seeker. You know, I started looking out outside of Christianity for answers. So, I, I, you know, I read this book called Siddhartha mm-hmm. by Herbert Hess, which was really the story of Buddha in his life, and that very much appealed to me. But in, from that, I read the Bible cover to cover when I was 19, and it scared me in a lot of ways, especially the, the Old Testament and mm-hmm. of who God was. So from that, I also read uh, the Dhammapada. I read the Bhagavad Gita, I read the Quran, I read all these great texts over a period, I think, of 20 years seeking. You know, I also got involved in the world and Mm -hmm. looked for answers to that deep hole that is inside of all of us, you know, through my career, through relationships, through drugs, you know, and then uh, I wound up in 36 going to what I call cocaine school. <laughs> it really wasn't getting any answers from that. Hmm. And I had this white light experience that I saw myself losing everything that I had or being dead or being in jail or whatever in five years. So I got cleaned and I, and, uh, you know, part of that recovery from drug use is about a higher power as AA calls it. Mm-hmm. You know, I my mother was there also for me during all this, and it came back to the Bible, which I read again, cover to cover, and I was very struck. This time it was different, and especially the red words of Jesus came to me and really spoke to me, and it was like coming home, really. So, in a sense, my story is, is really kind of like the prodigal son, mm-hmm. you know, which I have a song about, which is the title yeah. of the record, Fallen. Yeah. What year was that? What year did you get clean from cocaine? That was 1990. Yeah. Well, congrats on sobriety. I mean, that's an incredible journey, and we're glad you're here. There's an earnestness to the album. I don't know exactly what I was expecting when I, I saw the press release. You know, I saw that the, the album was coming out, that you were putting out a gospel record. I knew you'd been a musician. I'd seen some things in the past. I think part of what surprised me when I got the record, when I heard the record, is like, man, you didn't just you didn't just make an art, a gospel record. Like, 
you kind of went to the Oracle of Delphi of gospel records. You went to Bill Gaither, you know, like you made a Gaither record, you know what I mean? Like, um, what, tell me about that choice. I mean, that's a real specific decision in terms of a partner and it's Bill Gaither, right? Like he's the, like he's, he's kind of the, um, the the king the king of gospel music right like a, no, but getting. it's a very specific genre it's a very specific kind a very specific yeah. sound and you're very yeah. faithful and and yeah. uh, to it and the way you you made the record I was curious about that well, choice I, I think Bill Gaither's uh, Gaither music is also the most authentic hmm. you know they, he's a very authentic person he and his wife Gloria and uh, I found a home there you know very welcoming and. It's from my point of view, I guess it's my story. You know, everybody mm-hmm. has their testimony and this, I think this is mine. Yeah. How did you get connected with him? I'm curious. Like I said, through uh, my uh, manager, uh, Scott, who, uh, you know, made the overtures to them and they wanted to have a meeting. So I went in and had a meeting with Paul Sizelove over there and we were all on the same page. And they said, you know, okay, go and make your record. And uh mm-hmm. <laughs> and left me alone for for a long time so that I turned it in and yeah you know they were I was very happy with their response and uh, so yeah they're fantastic people yeah what are you hoping this does like who do you hope this record is for do you feel like there's a built-in audience who's already with you as a musician or are you are you trying to connect with a different group of people or are you just trying to tell a story well I'm just trying to do what's coming out of me you know, mm-hmm. and that it seemed like a very kind of a perfect time for it. And, you know, do I dare say it that, you know, really, this is what God was kind of telling me to do in an inner voice, you know, mm-hmm. because like I was talking about when I first came back to, you know, to reading the Bible again, and it was like, you know, through the red words of Jesus and stuff. I think Christianity had been kind of a cerebral experience more before, and I'd never really realized what uh, having Jesus as my personal Savior was Mm. about. Mm. And the relationship became a personal relationship. Mm -hmm. And that, too, was over a period of time, I think. Mm. And uh, he didn't really—Jesus didn't actually become a personal relationship, I think, in what others talk about when they say they have a personal relationship with Jesus. Until right around the time of the making of this record, it's a deepening, you know, that's still ongoing, I think. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the passing of your mom. I mean, so my my father passed about two and a half years ago as well. And there is just something about it, right? Like there's something about life that is there's a before and after to it that's hard Mm -hmm. to describe for people who haven't been through it. Like the world just feels very, very different. I mean, I, I... I remember a friend of mine who'd also lost his father in a very kind of untimely way. It was just right during really the heart of the, the worst of COVID shutdowns. You know, he said the same thing to me. He said something to the effect of the world's just different when you wake up after you've lost a parent. And he yeah. described like the relationship you had with your mom. I mean, it sounds like a lot of her presence is obviously shaping the project as well. Yeah. When you lose a parent, and then especially when you lose both parents as well, whether you've had a good relationship with them or not, their voices are always in your head and they're part of who you are. And then when they're gone, it's like, it's, it's all in in you now. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, I guess orphaned is a little bit finally, uh, you know, because the child inside you is still there. My mom died before COVID in that August before COVID hmm. happened. And then I made the record during COVID, hmm. which was, I think, also added to the experience i lost i lost friends during that time and you know that's that's there in, in the record mm-hmm. but i think you know the as far as an audience you i think your original question is about what do i wanted to do i mean <laughs> i kind of say this jokingly but i i guess it's it's also true is that uh, i called it fallen uh, a gospel record for sinners because I wanted to have the largest audience possible. <laughs> so, well played. And, and that's uh, you know it's kind of true because mm-hmm. we're all we are all sinners and we all yeah. and I think that's you know gets down to the crux of the personal relationship and a personal savior mm-hmm. that you have with Jesus is that His blood is what mm-hmm. washed away all of our sins like surf pro like they never even happened and <laughs> yeah. that's 
really the message, the good news that comes from that, that I don't think people from the, from the, if you're from the outside of Christianity, they just look at the sin part and the hypocrisy of it. But it's really that we are all, we're forgiven of all that. You just need mm-hmm. to wake up to it mm-hmm. because once you wake up to it, it changes your life. It spawns a lot of questions for me. I mean, obviously, you know, you've been a, a beloved actor for decades, um, and you're certainly not a character actor by any means. I don't, I don't mean to put it that way, but oftentimes when you show up on screen, people are happy to see you because you generally bring this very joyful thing into whatever you do, whether it's sort of the snarky characters in some of the sort some shows or the the the, the fatherly characters or or whatever. It's but it. That was another thing that I was wrestling with as listening to the record is that there is something about the sort of on your knees, desperation and grief, which I think even hearing the story more makes even more sense of it. Like the grief of singing these songs, praying these prayers, crying these things out to God. It's a vulnerability that I think is probably going to be unexpected for some listeners. Hmm. That's, you know, a lot of what you said, I, I kind of see, and uh, I am a naturally joyful person, mm-hmm. I think. That's kind of like in my soul. But uh, I've had the luckiest of lives, too. And there's a humility, I think, that goes along with really getting down to finding out who you really are mm-hmm. in relation to God, you know, your relationship with Him. Not that I have that all figured out, because I don't, but we all go through periods of doubt in our lives. We all go through periods of pride. You know, we, we experience everything there is yeah. in life. And uh, that's really kind of like, in a way, what Jesus came here to right. really know man and went through everything that there's not a thing that happens in life or that a human being can think or act upon or whatever that is not found in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly is all right there in the Bible mm-hmm. of the human experience. Yeah, and, and I think part of what makes the Christian message, I don't know if it's that it makes it interesting or difficult, or we certainly live in a time where the more tragic side of life is not something that is lived out in a public way, is is displayed in a public way. And it's not something that you often see talked about even in the church. I think the church often struggles to figure out, like, how do we help people with with grief, depression, despair, regret, guilt, yeah, shame? It's true, because uh, it, that's so very true. You know, the, the church does struggle because we're people, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't personally know anybody who's been to the other side and come back to tell me about it. You know, the Lazarus experience or... You know, Jesus is the, really the only one that's uh, come back to tell us. Mm-hmm. We're just human beings. Mm-hmm. That's all. We, we, we're fallible. We're we're so fickle. <laughs> we're we're petty. We're we're incredibly generous. Sometimes we're 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 you know we're 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 walking contradictions. Yeah. Put it that way. Yeah, for sure. And and I think um and I think you do a great job of sort of bringing that to the fore in the again, the song choices, the songs you've written and and even just the sound, the presentation of the record. So yeah, that's like a you know, come as you are is hmm. I put that in there. I try to put my favorites. So come as you are was because Billy Graham has always been my I just think he's the best there ever was and he certainly wasn't hypocritical. He, I mean, he may have felt that way. I've read, you know, biographies and stuff about him, but you know, he was out saving the world and he barely had time for his family and stuff like that, like things like that, that weighed on him and stuff like that. But he was like my spiritual father, I would say, here on earth. And that was the hymn that, they, you know, for the invitation that they had, that was at every service that he did around the world. It was coming to our, just, it's, that really struck deep with me one of the reasons I wanted to put that in there. What a friend we have in Jesus was my mother's favorite hymn. Mm-hmm. And the Lord's Prayer, which is kind of, it's out there, you know, as far as the version of it goes. Bing Crosby, every, every night on TV, like growing up, you know, they'd have to sign off. The stations would actually go off the air at like one or two in the morning or whatever. And then you'd mm-hmm. see that test pattern of an Indian chief with the the headdress or whatever, but right before that happened, they would do the Lord's Prayer. 
it'd be Bean Crosby hmm. singing the Lord's Prayer at sign off, you know, with kind of a a video of clouds, you know, right? Plane going through clouds, and uh, so that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. And I imagine Welcome Home is about your mom. Welcome Home is about it was I wrote about two months after my mother passed. Hmm. It's my mother's version of heaven hmm. that she told me. I mean, you know, from the time that I was a boy, mm-hmm. and you know, for me asking questions, and I'm sure that's what she got. Hmm. Well, Dennis, we so appreciate you making time for this conversation, and uh, excited for the release of the record. The album is called Fallen, and it releases on the 28th. Fallen. Uh, gospel record for sinners. <laughs> <laughs> and and actually, this podcast will be releasing on the day that the, the record is out. So it is oh, streaming right. everywhere. And Well, thank you, Mike, for, for taking time and having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. We're honored to do it. And uh, it, was, it was great to talk to you today. Thank you. Take care. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mole and Matt Stevens. The associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing, TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design, Brian Todd. Graphic design, Amy Jones. Social media, Kate Lucky. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.